you will, turn your Bibles again to Luke chapter 22. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke for some time now, and we've come finally this morning uh, to the very night on which Jesus was betrayed and arrested and tried on trumped-up charges, and we're just a few hours now in Luke 22 from his crucifixion. So you'll remember in verses 19 through 20, Jesus has explained to his disciples the meaning of his death. And then in verses 21 and 22, and again in verse 37, he had prophesied the soon approach of his death. And then now, beginning in verse 39, he goes off to be alone with God in order to prepare for his death. So read, beginning in verse 39 with me, and we'll read all the way down through verse 46. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Father, we pray now for ourselves that we not enter into the temptation to hear your word and to leave it unapplied, unbelieved upon, unobeyed. God, come and help us now, we pray. Speak to us by your spirit, through your word of your son, we pray in his name. Amen. The passage we've just read really ought to surprise us. Uh, Now, of course, I realize that if you have read the book of Luke before or grown up hearing these verses, they may not be all that surprising to you. You know what to expect. But surely uh, we would be surprised if we were reading the gospel of Luke for the very first time this morning. In fact, some of you may be doing that. You may have been hearing these verses for the very first time. And if you are, or if you can imagine that you were reading the Gospel of Luke for the very first time, you might well pause at the end of verse 46, surprised, and say, Come on now, Luke. Are you really trying to pass off this fearful, agonized character as Jesus of Nazareth? Surely this is... Just something you've made up. Surely this is creative license, Luke, to make uh, for a little better dramatic effect. Because, Luke, we've been following along for 22 chapters now, and Jesus has never, ever acted anything remotely like we see him acting in this passage. He's never once appeared worried or fretful. He's never seemed frightened in the face of opposition. He's never backed down from a challenge or even seemed the least bit nervous. When he was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness in chapter 4, he never responded like this. And that was after 40 days without food. And then later in that same chapter, when a religious mob tried to throw him off a cliff, he just walked through the crowd calm and unscathed. When he stared down the demons, he never flinched. When he was posed with trick questions, he never became ruffled. That's Jesus of Nazareth, Luke. So what's this whole bit about Jesus being so troubled that he's falling on his face on the ground and sweating drops of blood? It really, Luke, comes across as utterly unrealistic. 
I think that's what we might initially say if we were somewhere in the world where we were reading the book of Luke for the very first time, if we had never heard of Jesus' agony in the garden. It's an amazing thing that we're reading this morning. And it's a totally unexpected thing to see Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the universe, on his face, pleading with God not to send him to die. And yet that's exactly where he was. Luke is not employing cinematic license here. Jesus really was so distressed that he almost didn't make it. Mark tells us, in fact, that at this point, Jesus actually told the disciples that his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. So don't let that pass you by. Never before have we seen Jesus like this. And never again will we see Jesus like this. We get a window into the soul of Jesus in these eight verses like we get nowhere else in the scripture. This is a a one-of-a-kind and therefore an enormously important passage. And since it is, there are likely to be some rare and glorious jewels for us to mine from it, don't you think? If there's one instance in the Bible that's unlike any other, we want to get all that we can get out of this one instance. And there are three rare jewels in particular that I want you to dig out with me and to hold up and to marvel at. Three key observations to make from this passage. The first is this, that Luke twenty two thirty nine through 46 is a passage about prayer. It's a passage about prayer. There can be little doubt that this is true. In fact, you'll notice that in all but one of these verses, some reference is made to prayer. Seven out of the eight verses. In verse 39, Jesus was heading out of the city gates up to the hill called the Mount of Olives. Why? Well, because we're told that was his custom. His custom. He was going there because he always went there to pray when he was staying in and around Jerusalem. So in verse 39, Jesus is on his way to the place of prayer. And then in verse 40, he instructs his disciples to be in prayer as well. And then in verse 41, he himself knelt down to pray. Verse 42, we actually have the substance of what he prayed. Verse 44, we're told that he was praying very fervently. Verse 45, he rose up from his prayer. And in verse 46, he commanded his disciples once more to get up and pray. So as I say, there's no question that this passage is meant to teach us about prayer. Both about how Jesus prayed and about how we should be praying as well. And then the question is, what does it teach us? What do these events, what do these prayers actually have to say to us? Other than that Jesus was praying that day and that his disciples should have been. Well, let me give you a three-part answer. So one big point here, this is a passage about prayer, and now three, three ways we can see that. First, this passage simply reminds us that even Jesus prayed. Even Jesus prayed. Yes, Jesus was and is the Son of God. Yes, he has all authority in, in heaven and in earth. Yes, he commands the winds and the waves and the diseases and the demons and even death itself, and all of these things obey him. But somehow, Jesus needed to pray. Somehow, in his humanity, he was dependent upon the answers of his Father and the help of the Holy Spirit, just like you are and just like I am. Even Jesus prayed. And of course, we see in this passage, I think, that he needed to do that. He was in deep distress, wasn't he? He needed comfort from on high. He needed strength in order to go forward and do what God had called him to do. And that's why this is such a one of a kind passage, and it's so important for us to understand. At other times, Jesus is always calm and composed, isn't he? Always. And given that fact, we might almost begin to think that when he prayed here, he was doing so just for our benefit. 
and not because he actually needed to do so. In other words, we might read this and say to ourselves, well, Jesus is God after all, and so surely he didn't actually need to pray. No, no, he must have just done all this to set a good example for us. Jesus must have prayed not because he needed help, but because we needed a pattern to follow. And now, of course, it's true that Jesus does pray for our benefit, and Luke records it for that reason. In fact, on one occasion in John 11, Jesus even said, Father, I'm praying out loud, not because I don't think you can hear me if I pray silently, but I'm praying out loud for the benefit of those around me. But in Luke 22, that's clearly not what he's doing. He went to the garden to pray that day because he clearly needed help. His agony and his bloody sweat tell the tale, don't they? As a full-fledged human being, Jesus actually needed to pray. So that's the first thing. Even Jesus prayed. And then here's the second. Therefore, we surely ought to pray as well, right? Even Jesus prayed. Well, then surely we ought to pray. If Jesus, who stared down demons and commanded waves and dumbfounded the religious know-it-alls, needed to get off by himself to ask for his Father's help from on high, what does that say about you and what does it say about me? Surely, if the Son of God needed to be alone in prayer, then you and I must need to be so all the more, right? In fact, Jesus said as much to his disciples, didn't he? In verse 40, he urged them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And again in verse 46, get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus wants his disciples to pray, and this is important for us to see, especially what he tells them to pray about. Surely we ought to be praying for all sorts of things all the time, right? But here Jesus says twice that his followers ought specifically to pray that we may not enter into temptation. In other words... One of the reasons why it's so important for you and I to pray is not just because our finances are tight or our head aches or our kids need potty trained. All those things are important and are prayer worthy, but equally important and more so really is that Jesus is saying we ought to be praying against temptation and against sin. In fact, this is one of the main things that we ought to be praying about, and really it's perhaps one of the main reasons why some of us still haven't overcome those besetting sins in our lives. Because we go into the world each morning, and I include myself into this many days, we go out into the fray where the flaming arrows of the devil are showering down upon us from every side, and many times we do so without praying about the specific temptations that we know will lie ahead of us in the day that's before us. Now, I know that when Jesus tells his disciples to pray that they won't enter into temptation, I know that the temptations that Peter and James and John and these others were about to face were unique. I understand that. The situations that we face each day are not quite the same as these men would be facing in just a few verses when the crowds showed up with swords and clubs in order to arrest their master. We're not exactly in their situation, but hear this well. Though the disciples' situation was in some ways very different from ours, they faced the very same enemy that we face. And though we are not the apostles, Satan is just as hell-bent on ruining Christians today as he ever was. And so we had better, some of us, with these disciples, get up and pray that we may not enter into temptation. Do you have a besetting sin? Or is there perhaps for you a person or a place or a radio station or an internet site or a magazine rack, or a time of day that you know creates for you unusual levels of temptation to sin? Perhaps you should just cut off the hand and gouge out the eye that caused you to stumble. 
But perhaps you should also be fervently praying each and every morning that when you are around that person or when you have to go into that place or when you reach that difficult time of day that you would not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation, Jesus says. It seems so obvious, doesn't it? And yet, I am just as slack many times as these disciples. Sleepy, lazy, or just totally oblivious to how heinous sin really is and how much Satan really wants to destroy me and how weak my flesh really is. And therefore, oblivious to those things, I walk many days right into the devil's firing line without even a thought as to the danger I might be in, much less a prayer. And so I say that even Jesus prayed. And if even Jesus prayed, we surely ought to be praying as well and not just when we're in trouble. That's the third thing. We ought to pray not just when we're in trouble or in temptation, but at all times. And I draw this application from verse 39. Remember, this wasn't the only time that Jesus went away to the privacy and quiet of the Mount of Olives, was it? No. Luke tells us it was his custom to do so. And the reason it was his custom is because the Mount of Olives was a good place for him to be alone and pray. And so the point of verse 39 is that Jesus didn't just rush off to pray that day because he was in trouble. He was always going out to a quiet place in order to pray. It was his custom. And if you have a custom of praying, then it's all the more easy to pray when you're in trouble, isn't it? So I just ask you, do you have a custom of prayer? Is daily time alone with the Lord a routine for you like it was for Jesus? It ought to be, shouldn't it? If he needed to start his day alone with God, how much more do you need to start yours in just the same way? So are you a person of prayer? Now, some of you who truly are people of prayer are perennially asking yourself if your prayer life measures up. And I'm not really talking to you right now, primarily. I'm speaking mostly to those of you who know that your prayer life, frankly, leaves a lot to be desired. I'm speaking to those of you who know that you can sometimes go for days on end without really communing with God in his word or in prayer. You shoot out quick prayers when you're in distress, perhaps, and you should do that. That's good. But you also know that there's no habit, no custom of prayer in your life, and you know something needs to change. And the question this morning from the example of Jesus and from the commandments of Jesus is simply, is anything going to change? I, I can't tell you how long or when or even what you should be praying about. Those answers will be different for each one of you. And this passage doesn't really touch on those things, does it? It doesn't say how long or when or where. But what it does do in seven of the eight verses is force us to realize that prayer is vital, that Christians cannot live healthily without time alone with God. Even Jesus couldn't live as he needed to live without time alone with God. And so would you set some time aside alone with God each and every day? If you would just do that, then the questions about when and how long and what would soon dissolve into a real friendship with God that would trump all those other questions and render them of secondary importance. So the main thing is simply that we do it, simply that we get up, verse 46, and pray. Even Jesus prayed, therefore surely we ought to pray as well, and not just when we're in trouble. That's the first observation this morning. This is a passage about prayer. But secondly, more importantly, it's also a passage about Jesus. It's a passage about Jesus. 
Uh, someone will say, well, of course it's about Jesus. You're always telling us that the whole Bible is ultimately a book about Jesus. And here we are in the Gospel of Luke, which is the life and times of Jesus. So, of course, this is about Jesus. That's not too surprising. But what I want you to see, as I mentioned already, is that this passage about Jesus opens up windows onto Jesus unlike really any other passage in Scripture. This passage allows us to see the person and character of Jesus almost like no other passage. We learn things about Jesus in these eight verses that are vital for us to understand. Truths about Jesus that we see perhaps more clearly here than we see anywhere else. And therefore we must pause and grasp what we can grasp about Jesus from this passage. If we're going to understand and appreciate and love him as we should. And so let me just point out a couple of things that this passage reminds us of. A couple of things it teaches us about Jesus. First... This passage is about Jesus' humanity. It's a passage about Jesus, and it's a passage about his humanity. Now, of course, this isn't the only passage that teaches us that Jesus was and is 100% human, is it? Many places in Scripture we could turn in order to underline that fact. But surely this is one of the most powerful places to demonstrate that Jesus really is fully man powerful after all as we've already seen these verses teach us that jesus too needed to pray verse 41 in other words jesus wasn't some sort of a superhuman demigod who had no weaknesses or frailties yes he was god himself but he was god made flesh and his real live fully human flesh needed to pray and the reason needed to pray was because of the great turmoil that was brewing in his breast we see that in verse 42 And on through verse 44. A superhuman would never have responded to impending death like Jesus responded here, would he? In fact, someone who is a little bit more than human might not even have needed to face the prospect of death in the first place. But Jesus was clearly not a little bit more than human or superhuman or unhuman or just appearing to be human. Jesus really was human. Fully God, yes, but fully man as well, with all the physical and emotional strains and stresses that you and I face every day, and really more strains and stresses than you and I could ever imagine. And so Jesus is fully human. In fact, so human and so frail was he in these moments that an angel came and ministered to him in verse 43. Now that's interesting, I think. In eternity past, by the word of his power, Jesus had actually created this angel that was now ministering to him. Jesus, when he was in heaven, had never needed the support or the comfort of an angel, had he? Truth be told, he was the one supporting and sustaining them. For he upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3, including the angels. But here we have one of those angels who had always been upheld by Jesus, now having to come to the earth and return the favor. It's amazing. It wasn't because Jesus had somehow lost his divinity. No, it was because he had fully and completely taken on humanity with all of its weaknesses, all of its neediness, and all of its frailty. And nowhere do we see that frailty better than in the physical distress under which he found himself at the end of verse 44. Jesus' inner turmoil, verse 42, was so great that as is true with all of us when we're under great strain, his body began to undergo turmoil as well. His turmoil was actually greater even than 
we, most of us, have ever even thought of facing. We're told that his sweat, verse 44, became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. What does that mean? It could be that all Luke means there is that Jesus was sweating so profusely that as the sweat fell to the ground, it was coming in a steady stream like blood coming from an open laceration. And since Jesus was sitting still in verse 44, and since he wasn't evidently sick, we understand that the only way such a large amount of sweat could have been produced was if he was under incredible mental and emotional stress. His agony was so great, in other words, that it profoundly affected his body. And you can't get more human than that, can you? And even if this was just profuse sweat pouring from Jesus' glands, it's enough to demonstrate powerfully that he was a man with a nature just like your nature and just like my nature. But more likely, what Luke is actually describing here was even more profound than just profuse amounts of sweat. It seems probable that what Luke was actually describing at the end of verse 44 was an incredibly rare physical phenomenon that doctors today call hematohydrosis. Now, you don't have to remember that word, but here's what it means. What happens is that when a person is dealing with tremendous stress and or fear, the blood vessels that are around their sweat glands can actually rupture because of the stress and the fear, leaking blood into the sweat glands that then mixes with the large amounts of sweat that also tend to pour out when a person is under stress. And the effect is that the person under such duress actually sweats blood. It's very rare. And the fact that it's very rare must mean that it must be a very rare kind of stress that comes upon a person that would create this rupture in this sweating of blood. And I think that's probably what Luke is describing without having the modern medical terminology to do so. The disciples evidently saw this too when Jesus walked back over to them in verse 46. Jesus was sweating blood. And again, I repeat that scientists tell us that this rare phenomenon usually occurs in persons who are dealing with phenomenal mental stress and or fear. There are some other medical reasons why it can happen, but those clearly weren't the case with Jesus. He was under duress, mental and emotional duress and fear. Just a few modern examples of this phenomenon uh, have occurred when inmates were about to be executed uh, with a person who was facing the German Blitzkrieg in the city of London in 1941 during World War II and afraid that a bomb was going to fall upon them. With a woman who thought that she was about to be raped and with a person caught in a potentially deadly storm at sea. That's how deep the anxiety has to be. And evidently, that's how deep it was for Jesus. And I say all of this to demonstrate that Jesus was fully human, just like us. In other words, the fact that Jesus was and is God did not mean that he could waltz through this world unconcerned or unfazed by its difficulties. He was fully God, but he was fully human. And this passage, perhaps like no other passage, shows us just how totally and completely human he was. And of course, this is important for a number of different reasons. Because Jesus was and is fully human, he can sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4 tells us. Because Jesus was fully human, he could die for our sins as the perfect human sacrifice for them. 
I won't elaborate on either of those two applications, but you just meditate on the bloody sweat and the agony of Jesus here in Luke 22. And I believe that the wonder of Jesus' sympathy and sacrifice will be driven home to you. It's an amazing thing. This passage teaches us in stark detail about Jesus' humanity. But then it also demonstrates in equally bold relief Jesus' humility. His humility. And with that in mind, we should notice well verse 42 again. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. That's an amazing, humble statement, isn't it? Most of us don't like saying that to anyone. We want what we want. We don't want what someone else wants for us. We want what we want for us, right? But here's Jesus facing horrific death and suffering, and he submits completely to his Father's will. And that's all the more amazing when we remember that the person who's submitting to another in verse 42 is actually God himself, right? If there was anyone who did not need to submit to anyone, anytime, anywhere, it was Jesus. After all, he was God, right? He wasn't just part God, he was fully God. And he wasn't just like a third of God, he was God, completely, totally, fully God. The ruler of the universe, commanding the demons, commanding the dead, commanding the winds, commanding the waves, and having all of them obey him. And yet here is this person bowing his will and submitting to his father's plan. And if Jesus, who is co-equal with the heavenly father, can say, not my will, but yours be done, then surely we ought to say that all the more readily. And think about this as well. Not only did Jesus' divinity make it amazing that he would humble himself and submit, but also his humanity. It's hard for humans to submit. It was in his humanity that death and suffering were going to be so terrible, right? It was in his flesh and blood and in his human emotions that this ordeal was going to be so frightening and even terrorizing for him. And yet he obeyed. He submitted. He humbled himself. And I say that's amazing because he was human. And you know what you and I sometimes do? Rather than using our lowly humanity as a reason why we should submit to God, who is so much greater than we mere mortals, we actually often use our humanity as an excuse for not submitting. In other words, when we mess up, when we blow it, when we run from God's will, we sometimes comfort ourselves by saying, well, you know, I'm human. And that sounds good, doesn't it? Because everyone else who's listening to that is human also, and they'd like to be able to keep that excuse in their hip pockets as well. Everyone except for Jesus, that is. Because Jesus was weak like us. He was mortal like us. He was stressed and overwhelmed with anguish like us. He was human like us. And yet he didn't use any of those excuses as a reason for turning back, not even when blood was mixing with his sweat and pouring down his face. And he's a wonderful portrait of humility and of obedience. And oh, that we might in some measure be able to humble ourselves with him and to say to God, no matter what the cost, not my will, but yours be done. But the main thing in this second heading is not to think about what we should do and be, but to admire who Jesus is and what he has done. So would you just stand back and admire him this morning? Would you glory this morning in his humanity and in his humility? Thanking God that he became humble so that he could live sinlessly for us. And thanking God that he became human so that he could die sacrificially in our place. What a Savior we have. 
So this is, as I say, a passage about prayer. It's also a passage about Jesus, a unique passage that lets us in more than most passages on what Jesus was really about and what he was made of, if we can put it that way. Passage about prayer, a passage about Jesus, and then finally, Luke 22, 39 through 46 is a passage about the atonement. A passage about the atonement. This is a passage, in other words, about how Jesus died for us, taking our place on the cross and absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. This is a passage about Jesus' death on behalf of sinners. But wait a minute, somebody says. I know this is about Jesus being on his way towards death, but he's not dead yet. And so you might ask, is this just another one of those preacher's tricks? You're trying to make every passage in the Bible eventually come back around to the cross and to the death of Jesus and so on. Well, to that I answer that it's true and it's right that preachers are often desperate to show how any and every passage of Scripture is vitally connected to Jesus' death and to the gospel. Sometimes, even though they have good motivations, preachers may stretch things a little bit to try and get there. But in this case, it's actually no stretch at all for me to say that this passage is about Jesus' death, even though he doesn't speak about his death and he's not dead yet. This passage is very much about not only how Jesus prepared to die for us, but how and why he actually did so. And I think I can demonstrate that by asking two questions of the text. The first is simply this. What if Jesus hadn't gone through with it? Do you ever think about when you read that? Think about that when you read this passage? What if Jesus hadn't gone through with it? What if Jesus' prayer had stopped in the middle of verse 42? What if he'd have simply said, remove this cup from me? Amen. What if he hadn't gone on to say, yet not my will, but yours be done? And what if God had answered that prayer? Suppose God could have answered, couldn't he? God could have simply looked down upon his suffering, sweating, bleeding, pleading son and said, Enough! These lowly sinners don't deserve that he should go through this for them, and he certainly doesn't deserve the anguish and the torture and the wounds and the mockery and the nail prints that are ahead of him. And God could, at that very moment, have removed the cup of suffering from Jesus' lips and canceled the whole thing. And I suppose that Jesus could have called it off as well. We say, well, he never would have, but could he have? Suppose he might could have. He could have forsaken his mission here. He could have caved under the mental duress here in Luke 22. And what would have happened if he did? Or what would have happened if God had simply called the whole thing off in response to Jesus' initial prayer? Well, we wouldn't be sitting here today reading Luke 22 and worshiping him, would we? In fact, Luke 22 would be the end of the book if their book had ever been written in the first place. I don't suppose Luke would have had a reason to write the book if Jesus would have just gave up the ghost and said, I'm not going to do it. Jesus would never have been arrested without Luke 22:42. He would have never been tried. He would have never been convicted on trumped-up charges. He would have never died on the cross, and he would have never had reason to rise from the dead on the third day. In fact, there wouldn't have even been a third day to mark off. The story would have ended right here in the middle of Luke 22:42. And if it had, your story would have ended as well. And so would mine. For if Jesus had not finished verse 42, if Jesus had not prayed, yet not my will, but yours be done, We'd all be dead men and women walking, wouldn't we? Dead children, too. 
we would be on a fast route to the lake of fire were it not for Luke 42 or Luke 2242b we are the ones who deserve the very things to which Jesus was submitting himself in verse 42. We are the ones who deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath, not Jesus. And yet he decided once and for all, right here in Luke 22:42, that he would drink it for us because it was his Father's good pleasure that he do so. So do you see? Even though Jesus did not die until Luke 23:46, this passage is about his death. He would never have reached Luke 23:46 without Luke 22:42. And so we should be amazed when we read the words not my will but yours be done. Amazed as we already said at Jesus willingness to submit when he seemed to have every good reason not to, but amazed all the more because if he hadn't we would be completely without hope. And so I say this is indeed a passage about the atonement. It's a passage about our salvation through the death of Jesus in our place. Without Luke 22:42 there is no gospel. But then now let me ask a second and final question that I think will drive that fact home all the more. Namely, why was Jesus so anguished in verse 44? Why was he so troubled that Mark says it almost killed him? Why was he under so much stress that his blood vessels apparently burst within him so that he was literally sweating blood. The obvious answer would seem to be that well he was facing death and excruciating death at that. After all Jesus knew the prophets and so he knew what was ahead of him. He knew that he was about to be beaten beyond recognition, Isaiah 52:14. He knew that he was about to be scourged, Isaiah 53:5. He knew that he was about to be pierced through, Isaiah 53:4. And he knew that his heart from hanging on the cross, unable to catch his breath, was about to melt like wax within him, Psalm 22:14. And if you knew all of those things were going to happen to you before lunchtime tomorrow, you'd be pretty stressed as well, wouldn't you? And so it'd be easy to read this passage and say, well, it's obvious that Jesus, just like anyone else would be, was horribly frightened by the process of dying and particularly by the thought of dying in the most appalling manner. But let me remind you as we said already that Jesus had been in tremendous distress before. Jesus had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted face to face by the devil himself. Now think about that. Not eating for 40 days. That could kill a man too. perhaps just as excruciatingly as the cross only much more long and drawn out and think about what it was like to be tempted by satan personally for 40 days with all the hunger pangs and all the headaches and everything else that was pleading with him not to obey god and just to give in even the strongest marine if he had to go through what jesus went through for 40 days in the wilderness would go mad absolutely insane and yet jesus never so much as flinched in that case he didn't sweat blood he didn't cry out in the wilderness to have the cup removed from him then and so it seems a bit out of character that he would be so upset now this is the man who never got out of sorts this is the man who was always in complete control of himself this is the king of the universe remember and now his knees are knocking because of a few hours of suffering that lie ahead of him 
That would certainly be true of you and me, but not Jesus. This isn't what we see in Jesus. In fact, let me go a step further in order to demonstrate that surely was G- Jesus was not in all this fuss merely about the cruelty of a Roman cross and the kicks and smacks of a few Pharisees. And to do so, I want to quote the English professor J.I. Packer. He asked the following question. How should we explain the fact that whereas martyrs like Stephen, Acts 7, faced death with joy, and even Socrates, the pagan philosopher, drank his hemlock and died without a tremor, Jesus, the perfect son of God who had never before showed the least fear of man or pain or loss, manifested in Gethsemane what looked like blue funk. Never a man feared death like this man, commented Luther. Why? What did it mean? It's a very perceptive set of questions, I think. How could the early church deacon, Stephen, who was stoned to death in Acts 7, face death and endure that stoning with his head held high and his heart full of joy and his face like the face of an angel, we're told. And all the while, his master, who is far superior to Stephen in every conceivable way, sweat drops of blood when faced with the same situation. How could that be? In fact, I dare say that many people have faced similar physical pain and suffering, including Stephen, to Jesus, and not responded like Jesus responded here in Luke 22. So what gives? Why was Jesus so afraid? Did he just turn coward in these moments on the Mount of Olives? Or could it be that his fear and his anguish really had very little to do with the physical torture that lay ahead of him? The answer has to be the latter, doesn't it? Surely, Stephen was not stronger and braver and more hopeful in death than Jesus. So surely Jesus must have had something far more weighty, something far more frightening hanging over his head than anything Stephen or anyone else could ever dream of facing. But what was it? Well, the answer comes here in Jesus' own words at the beginning of verse 42. What was Jesus so afraid of? He was afraid, that verse tells us, of a cup. Let this cup pass for me. But what was this cup? Well, if you were to use a Bible concordance or an online Bible tool and research the word cup, what you would find is that very often the wrath of God, the anger of God towards sin and sinners is described as being mixed in a cup. For instance, Psalm 75, 8, we're told that a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink it down to its dregs. Or Jeremiah 25, 15, we read of the cup of the wine of the wrath from God's hand. The same basic thing in Revelation 14.10 where John speaks of the cup of God's anger which is mixed in full strength. So the cup in biblical terms is mixed, filled with the wrath of God and is to be drained to the very last drop by mankind as punishment for his sins. And that is the cup that Jesus is speaking about here in verse 42. That is the cup that he was about to drink down to its dregs. Jesus wasn't just facing brutal human suffering. He was facing the fierce 
wrath of Almighty God. And not just the fierce wrath of Almighty God that you deserve, and not just the fierce wrath of Almighty God that I deserve, but Jesus was about to drink the cup of the fierce wrath of God for every sin of every person who ever has or ever will believed on his name. Myriads and myriads of people, all of them with cups full of wrath that they deserve to drain to the last drop, and all of it now mixed into a single cup for the Lord Jesus to empty to the very bottom in roughly a 12-hour period. That's what he was so afraid of. Not the nails, not the hammers, not the clubs, not the thorns, not the scourging, not the suffocation in his own bodily fluid. Jesus could have handled all of that with relative ease, just like Stephen did. But what made his lips to quiver, what made his knees to weaken, what made his blood vessels burst inside of his body was the fact that he was about to absorb not just the wrath of a few angry men, but the fierce wrath of Almighty God mixed against all the sins of all God's people for all time. And what torment it must have been. The nails and the thorns must have seemed like nothing in comparison to the unseen but furious wrath of God that was to be poured down his throat during those hours on the cross. We can't even fathom it. The only way that we can even begin to fathom it is if we might imagine what an eternity in hell might be like under the wrath of God and then multiply that torment by the number of all the people who should be there, but who are in heaven instead. That's what Jesus was contemplating with his face to the ground here in Luke 22. He drained the cup of the fierce wrath of God Almighty against millions and millions of sinners in whose place he perished. It's, it's unthinkable, really. It's indescribable. So I won't go any further except to say this to those of you who believe. Because he drained the cup of wrath against your sins, you are enabled, Psalm 116, to lift up the cup of salvation and call upon God's name. Because he drank down to the dregs the cup of wrath that you and I deserve, we may take of the cup of the Lord's Supper, Luke 22:20, 20, and remember him with joy. Because he drank your cup here on earth, you have the privilege of drinking his cup at the banqueting table in the kingdom of God, Luke twenty-two, thirty. There are several cups in Luke 22, cups that we drink, a cup that Jesus drinks for us. It's a great privilege for all who believe in Jesus' name to have him drink the cup of God's wrath against our sin to its bottom so that there is nothing left for God to pour out on us. But do you believe in his name? And if not, would you not? Given all that you've heard this morning, I can't think of a good reason why anyone would leave here not trusting in this Jesus. Because you see, there are two cups in the Bible. There's the cup of blessing and salvation and joy in the kingdom of God that only Jesus deserves to drink. And then there's the cup of the wine of the wrath from God's hands that you and I so richly deserve. And the beauty of the gospel is that right here in the middle of Luke chapter 22, and for all who believe in his name, Jesus switched the cups. 